I have to admit, while I was nervous ahead of time at the royal wedding, once I was preaching, I wasn't because I was doing what I do. You know, you think about it. People who act, we give them awards. We give them Oscars and Emmys and Tonys, and they make a lot of money because acting is hard work. Being who you actually are is not hard work. It's actually letting go of a load of having to pretend and having to prove yourself. It's presenting your best self. And I just think there's incredible liberation in that. And I'm still trying to grow into it more and more. Because at some point you have to say, you know what? Like me, dislike me, love me, not love me. Gotta be me. And me is okay. (laughs) So how do you step into conversations, whether personal or professional, family, friends, colleagues, even perceived or real adversaries, and still find a place for love in that conversation, even when you wildly disagree? Is that even possible in some situations? Is it asking way too much? Or is it the only way to finally feel the way you want to feel and resolve an issue approached any other way that would remain forever intractable? Well, that's what we're talking about with today's guest, the Most Reverend Michael Curry, who is the first African-American individual to serve as the presiding bishop and primate of the Episcopal Church, chief pastor, president, and chief executive officer, and chair of the executive council of the Episcopal Church. And born in Chicago in the 50s, with a dad who was an Episcopal priest, his mom died at a young age, and he and his sister were raised in a family that was rooted not just in faith, but in social activism through his father's leadership and his own dedication to writing a broken world. And eventually ordained himself in 1978, Bishop Curry grew increasingly active on issues of social justice, reconciliation, immigration, and marriage equality, often taking positions that were counter to a broader tradition and never shying away from opportunities to invite people to challenge convention in the name of creating a more inclusive community that welcome all with love and dignity. In May of 2018, Bishop Curry delivered a moving sermon on the redemptive power of love at then Prince Harry and Meghan Markle's royal wedding just months after serving as the officiant for the state funerals of Senator John McCain and President George H.W. Bush in the Washington National Cathedral. Bishop Curry has also written five books. His latest, Love is the Way, Holding on to Hope in Troubling Times, which expands upon his focus on love as the centerpiece for a new way to live and find meaning and peace, even at a time where they can seem so hard to access. We explore all of this in today's Best of Conversation. So excited to share it with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. 
and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Urtube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important. So I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. So let's dive in. I am from New York, raised Jewish, uh-huh. very in a very non-practicing way, but with all the traditions. So I had zero exposure to the Episcopal Church, no exposure to you whatsoever until a few years ago when I, along with, oh, two billion or so people around the world, <laughs> um, tuned in. Actually, I, I didn't tune in live to watch the Royal Wedding, but then you know, I think it was the next day. I just kind of really quickly just searched and I saw everybody talking about this sermon from a, a person named Bishop Curry. So I pulled it up and I watched this sermon, which I, my, I recall, I think it was 12 or 13 minutes. Uh-huh. And I was absolutely captivated watching you. And I realized that it was on two levels. One was the words, the ideas that you were sharing. The other was this sort of study in contrast where um, you, it was you in this deeply aristocratic, reserved culture and setting, but you being utterly alive and emotional and fierce. And I wondered what that moment was like for you on, on both those levels in terms of sharing the ideas you were sharing in this context and also experiencing this contrast. I wonder if you felt that as well. Well, you know, I, I mean, I really did. I mean, you you could not be aware <laughs> um, on some levels. And on other levels, I was in church, which is a territory I'm relatively familiar with. And well, I have to admit, there's probably some advantages to being in your mid-60s um, when you do something like that. Because at this stage of life, I really don't have too much to prove, I don't think. I mean, I'm just kind of happy to still be here. You know, <laughs> that's probably the except. So it probably had, there's some advantage in that, I suspect. But I think the contrast were built into the occasion. And I'm not sure that everybody was aware of it. I think the couple was aware, they were aware. They were aware of what they were doing. And they were a, a, a contrast. He's British. She's American. He's British aristocracy and a white guy, and she's black, multiracial. 
they probably share the same politics, I suspect, but I don't, don't really know. They represent two different countries and multiple cultures. Um, as you said, one sort of aristocratic and venerable and old, hers more mixed, um, very much like an American um, um, in that respect. And uh, they were bringing that together, but not only in, embodied in the two of them, you had it embodied in the audience. I mean, two billion people, that's like most of the people on the planet, you know, who could watch TV. I mean, that was pretty much all of us. And they, you know, they had that marvelous gospel choir, uh, which people thought I brought them from America. I said, no, they're in London. They're they're part of you all. And a marvelous gospel choir there, a celloist, a young, he's probably maybe 21 now. I think he was like 19 years old. And to listen to him command an orchestra, needless to say, this wasn't like a, you know, a, a slapdap orchestra. This was like about the best you could get. And this 19-year-old Black British kid uh, commanded. I mean, I said, oh, God, now I know what Yo-Yo Ma was like at, at 19. You know what I mean? Those kind of, all that stuff was going on. And then you had, I mean, I, I'm in and out of England a lot. Um, because the Episcopal Church is part of the Anglican family, the Church of England and all that kind of stuff. So I'm in and out of for meetings and that kind of stuff. I've never seen England that excited about anything. I mean, that's just not their way. But people had flags. They were way. I mean, you you saw Union Jacks all over the country. It was just it was really it was a moment of joy, not just for Britain, but I mean, America. I mean, people were getting up early in the morning uh, wearing the the you know the hats you know doing that having parties all over but this was going on over the world i've been in africa since then people were watching there and east asia people were i said something different was going on it was a study in contrast and it was bigger than what was once an empire it was bigger than a stratified class structure society um it was bigger than racial differences and variety it was bigger than religious differences and variety it was bigger i mean it was something big was going on i could feel it i kind of knew it ahead of time but being there i was very much aware and then afterwards very much aware that I really do believe, you know, in the movie Color Purple, um, based on Alice Walker's book, um, there's a scene where there are folk in the bar and they're partying all night. And then in the morning, the folk in the church are partying. Well, the folk in the bar are still singing their bar song and the folk in the church are singing a gospel song. And at, after a while, the folk in the church, they really start rocking with a gospel song. And the folk in the bar hear it. Well, the girl who's lead the woman who's leading the bar stuff is the daughter of the preacher who's sort of alienated. She's sort of a prodigal. And she comes out and she starts singing the song and leading the folk from the bar into the church. And the song they sing is God is trying to tell you something. I got a feeling that in that experience, God was trying to tell us something about God's dream and vision for the human family. And while none of us anticipated a pandemic, this kind of worldwide strife while no one was consciously thinking of impact on climate and what that's going to mean and how we're going to navigate through that. The truth is there may have been a message. You're in this together. You need each other. You need me. And if we do it that way, we can figure our way through. You know, I'm not a mystical person. I'm not. I mean, I wish I was, but I'm not. I mean, I'm an ordinary guy. 
But I could sense that you could feel that there. And I think those contrasts were brought together because God was trying to tell us something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, it does feel like there was something bigger. Yeah. There was a much bigger sort of context slash container slash unspoken message mm-hmm. that really mm-hmm. infiltrated the moment. And as you said, would be beautiful if we could keep that uh, growing and expanding and amplifying that. I know you, you wrote in your recent book that you can't open someone else's heart without being true to your own. When you commit to being yourself in any environment, mm-hmm. even your presence can be a powerful corrective. Yeah. and. It seems like when you stepped into that room, it almost felt like you made a, a decision that I will step in as me, as as all of me, the way I have always been. And I guess that, that sort of speaks to what you opened with, which is, you know, 60 some odd years into life, maybe that's a little bit easier also. It, You've been doing this a long time. You know who you yeah, are. Yeah. So it, it, it gives you access to that differently. I think it helps. I think it really does. Because, I mean, I mean, while you continue to be formed and you do, you continue to grow and evolve and develop, that's, that's good. That's life. I mean, that means you're still alive. The only things that don't grow are dead. So you're still growing and evolving and developing and all that kind of stuff. But there's a sense in which, as the old song, I've been up and I've been down, you know, and uh, there's more to come, I'm sure. But um I'm okay with Michael. I got my imperfections and perfections. Okay, that's part of the lot, and I'm I'm keep trying to improve and grow. But I'm okay that the pace is sometimes slow, and you know, at sixty was well, sixty five whenever that when that um, when that service ha- actually happened, I was just very aware of that. I was kind of settled, you know. At first, I mean, that, that's right. That's a pretty. Uh, frightening. One, I didn't know two billion people were going to be watching. I had no idea how many people would actually watch. Probably a good thing. Yeah, that's right. probably good. Yeah. <laughs> and and then two, it's easy to forget that you're actually on television because at it, it, the chapel, at St. George's Chapel, um, the cameras are recessed. You can't see them. Um, so you don't actually see. It's not like the old days where you, or where you see a camera and a camera person standing behind him with headphones, you know, on. You don't actually see them. So you almost forget that the cameras are there, which is dangerous because you don't want to scratch your nose or something because uh, the whole world could like see you scratch your nose. And um, and after a while, even though you're sitting in the midst, especially in that part of the sanctuary, I mean, the royal family is all up there. I mean, and, you know, that's a pretty um, intimidating kind of crowd. I mean, and yet they were sitting in pews just like church folk. Well, I've been around church folk a long time, um, going back to my grandma. <laughs> and I know church folk's body language, even if they don't say anything. <laughs> so I know if they're asleep <laughs> or if they're really paying attention or if they're trying to. Pay, I, you can read the face. You can read you can read the eyes. And it there were moments when I could see, OK, we're connecting. We're talking. There's a conversation going on, even though there are no amens coming back at me and nobody's. You know, nobody's shouting or any of that, but but I could see response, human response, the response of soul talking to soul. And that, I mean, I know that that's, I mean, from all the years of being a pastor and a preacher, and I've learned that when heart touches heart, when soul touches soul, that's when something is happening. Everything else is preliminary to that. But when heart touches heart, I used to have a lady when I was a, a young, young priest in my 30s. And this was in Lincoln Heights, Ohio, just outside of Cincinnati. 
all black town just on the outskirts of this of the city that was actually settled in the 20s part of that the great migration that a number of people have written about over the years anyway it was a fairly poor settlement of blacks going north from the south um, heading north in the 20s 30s um, long and short eventually there was a church founded there and to this day it's a small one square mile basically black african-american community to this day um, struggling with all of the issues that are attendant to that. But anyway, I was there in the uh, in the 80s, and there were a few, only one or two people in the congregation who I was aware of who probably didn't read, or if they did, it was not very well. And one of them was a dear woman uh, who worked as a domestic worker for many years and was in her 70s when I was there. And she was still having to work because, you know, Social Security is a blessing, but it's not enough. It's just not enough. And so she would come to the early service at seven because she I guess she would work the evening. And and when when she would, you know, feel good about something, she would like sometimes she, she'd come to communion, she'd clap her hand and just say, Thank you, Jesus. And just clap her hand. Thank you, Jesus. And you know, little kids would giggle. They would always love to see her, you know, do that. Uh, but every Sunday after the service, she would come to the door and you know, you stand at the door greeting. And um sometimes she would say, oh, there was a that nice message this morning. Um, and then other times uh, she would like say, well, that's a nice robe you have on. <laughs> so I, I knew, okay, we didn't connect. Other times she would come out and say, oh, you preached this morning. And it took me a while to kind of figure out what did she, she was sending messages. Each one was a different, you know, I said, what, what was different when she said, oh, you preached this morning. Finally realized that it had nothing to do with my erudition. It had nothing to do with my oratorical skills. It had nothing to do with how funny I was or how animated. I, it had nothing to do with any of that. It had to do was did soul touch soul? Did spirit touch spirit? Did heart touch heart? Did something in her life get touched by something either that I said or evoked? <laughs> and 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 did she in that moment have an experience of a transcendent reality that was bigger than the hard work that she had to do all week long, still having to work. That's when that happens, you know, and it doesn't happen all the time. And I mean, I know, but when, when that happens, that's bigger than Michael Curry. <laughs> I, I, I've learned that you can't conjure that manufacture that. And I knew that that was true that was going to be ahead of the service, that that was going to be true at the, at the Royal wedding, that, that ultimately I just needed to somehow create space in some hearts for God to do God's thing. And, and when that happens, it's not a nice talk. Preaching happened. And, and so I got, once I got to the point of saying, that's what I got to do. Then I was okay. It didn't matter where I was. Yeah. It, it was interesting to see also. You, I'm sort of drawing on my memory here, but my recollection is, because I, I was, for some reason, I was following your gaze while you were speaking. And almost entirely, you were speaking to the couple. And I rarely saw you turn out to the, uh, the denomination, to the congregants there, which, which really aligns with what you're saying. Like, you had something that you wanted to create, and but fundamentally, you were there to to create this energy, this experience. It's almost like I feel like you thought, well, if if I can create this 
were these two people stepping into this thing together, mm -hmm. then everybody else who participates in that as a quote observer is going to feel it too. Yes. And it felt like an intentional call for you. Yes. Talk to them. Talk to them. And other, you know that story in, in uh, Genesis by Abraham and Sarah, when God comes and talks to Abraham or God shows up and, and, and is in conversation with Abraham and Sarah, his, his wife is eavesdropping at the tent over liquor. That's what's going on. That was what was going on. I mean, I'm not God, but I mean, I was talking to, to this couple, I mean, to the two of them and there were two billion Sarah's eavesdropping at the tent. Some of those Sarah's were sitting right there in the church building. The rest of them were all watching on TV or they had big screens outside of the, of the chapel. So there were people outside um, watching that way, but they were eavesdropping and we were all eavesdropping on a conversation that was going on really between two people and hopefully God. And I was just facilitating that. And that, that when that and that, and at a wedding you can do that. You, I mean that's what that's kind of you really are talking to the two of them because tradition is that actually the ministers of a wedding are actually the couple, not the preachers, not the not the clergy. The clergy are facilitating that, but actually the minute the the two ministers are whoever's getting married. They're the ones taking the vows. They're the ones. They're actually doing all the heavy lifting. We're just facilitating, just just helping them out. That's such an interesting lens. I mean, you mentioned that you you also you've had your own ups and downs. You you essentially grew up in the church, um, born in Chicago, raised in Buffalo. Dad was an Episcopal priest. Interestingly, though, he he didn't. I guess he didn't start out that way. Your your dad came up. His dad was a Baptist, and but he, I guess, after meeting your mom, uh -huh. had an experience in Episcopal church that shifted the way that he wanted to move forward. Yeah, both of my parents grew up Baptist, kind of in the traditional Black Baptist tradition, certainly of the well, what late twenties, thirties, and and forties. That would have been the world in which they they grew up. My mother had become an Episcopalian in college some years before. But daddy was still a Baptist when he got to, he went to undergrad at Wilberforce University and then stayed and went to the seminary. And he was going to become a Baptist preacher. At least that, that was his intent at that point. And so he was studying in the seminary. He had already graduated from undergrad. And, and my mother was teaching at the undergrad. And how they met, I don't really know. I, that's a part of the story. And everybody who knows that story is dead now. So I have to wait and get to heaven and ask them. But but at some point they met, started courting and dating. And in the course of their, uh, while they were dating, mommy took him to church with her. And so he went and he had never been in, well, two things. He had never been in an Episcopal church. I don't even know if he had heard of the Episcopal church before that. So he had never been in one. Um, and he had never been in a predominantly white church. Um, I mean, because wherever they went, I don't know the church. It was pretty much white, maybe a few blacks. I don't know. Um, so he'd never been in either one of those contexts, which also meant he had never been in a liturgical context where communion would be served in the way in which it was served, um, where everyone was basically drinking from the same cup. And it was ex the experience of that, of communion in that setting, where he saw my mother drink from uh, the cup um, during communion. And then he saw white people drink from the same cup afterward. 
that and when he would tell this story, you know, when you're kids, you get tired of hearing it. But but when he would tell the story, he would say at that moment, that's when he realized any church that where blacks and whites drink from the same cup knows something about the gospel I want to be a part of. And so, you know, this is like 19 late 40s, 1940s, uh, mid 40s, just after World War Two. I mean, you know, Martin Luther King was in seminary himself at this point. Uh, Rosa Parks was not hadn't was, you know, still sitting at the back of the bus. You know, Jackie Robinson hadn't happened yet. I mean, Brown versus Board of Education haven't happened yet. You know, I mean, so this is a long time before the Montgomery bus boycott, the March on Washington or Selma March or any. It is long before all of that. This is still segregated America. And I, I mean, even I mean, uh, uh, Harry S. Truman had not yet desegregated the military. <laughs> I mean, that's the context in which we're talking. And he saw blacks and whites drinking from the same cup. And he said, whatever religious tradition this has got to do with, I want to be a part of that because it knows something about God. And and so that's how, that's what kind of led him into the Episcopal Church. And so, you know, and, and, and realistically, he had to learn that even though that was the case in terms of the ritual, and it was, the the whole Episcopal Church had not been converted. It, it wasn't uh, Shangri-La. Uh, it wasn't the kingdom of God uh, in its fullness. But at least it had the vision of what it was supposed to be. And 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 so he dared to live that and became an Episcopal priest. And he, you know, interestingly enough, he and I had a conversation at some point uh, because Daddy was a much more reserved. I mean, in the pulpit, he was certainly very reserved. He. Whatever emotion there was in him when he got to a fiscal seminary, they took it out of him. And and he said that they actually taught you that back in the this is back in the 50s when he would have been in seminary, fiscal seminary. He said that they actually taught you that the display of emotion was a sign of lack of intellect. And so therefore, uh, when one preaches, one gives a learned dissertation, a reflection, but not a display of emotion. It should be an intellectual exercise. Um, that that I don't know does what, but anyway, it's supposed to be an intellectual exercise. Well, you know, I mean, I mean, obviously, a sermon ought to have some intelligence to it, uh, but it ought to be felt. Now, that doesn't mean anybody has to feel the way I feel or the way somebody else feels, but it ought to be. It, it, hopefully, you believe what you're saying, or at least you're trying to believe what you're saying. And uh, that changed by the time I went to seminary. That it, that had really, in terms of what they teach folk and and seminaries, changed dramatically. But at one point, we were talking and I don't remember I'm sure I was ordained by that time he said um you preach like your grandfather more of the baptist tradition yeah he was yeah. he said you preach yeah. like your grandfather he said but just remember don't put on a show be who you really are that was like kind of one of those in the car conversate kind of things but I get it I mean, I really do get it. You know, there's, there's, I have to admit, while I was nervous ahead of time at the royal wedding, once I was preaching, I wasn't. Mm. Because I was doing what I do. And if, I mean, it's, it's like, I mean, you know, you think about it. People who act, we give them awards, we give them Oscars and Emmys and uh, Tonys, (laughs) Uh, and they make a lot of money uh, because acting is hard work. Being who you actually are is not hard work. It, it actually is. Now, it takes, is there discipline and there's learning and growth? You know, I mean, I get all that. I mean, it is. 
but it but it's not heavy lifting. It's actually lightening, letting go of a load of having to pretend and having to prove yourself. It's presenting your best self, but your best self. And I just think there's incredible liberation in that. And I'm still trying to grow into it more and more, but, but there really is. Because at some point you have to say, you know what? Like me, dislike me, love me, not love me. But was it Frank Sinatra singing song? I gotta be me. I gotta be me. You know, and and me is okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's such a great place to get to. And I wonder if so many of us struggle to stand in that sort of like deeper essence of who we are publicly and share that person because if we are performing someone else or some other you know like facade of what we uh, think people want or will receive openly, and that gets rejected, well, we can put on a different coat the next day. You know. We can wear a different facade, you know, we, it's, it's not, it's not the capital S self. It's not the essence of us that they have said no to. It's this thing that we projected. Whereas if we let that go and we just show up without the coat and, and we just say, I am like, this is me. And then somebody says, well, well, but you're not my flavor mm. that hurts. And we don't, I, I feel like we don't, so many of us enter adulthood without the skills yeah. and the understanding, uh, just be okay with that and say, I am not everybody's flavor, you know, and that's okay. Yeah. Like, and, and um, so we keep wearing these, you know, like these, these different things to try and buffer ourselves from that rather than just letting it go. And then spending the time to move through the world mm-hmm. as that person and know that eventually those who genuinely connect with that person, that essence will um you'll be in community with it may take time but we're i think we're scared we'll never act that that moment will never happen so we never actually let it happen yeah that's that's yeah i think there is a fear i know that i mean for all of us i mean you know still at my age it's 67 still there there are moments when i feel like oh i've got to be you know i've got to be this role or that well you know you have roles that you have to play but listen to the language roles that you have to play right not roles that you necessarily are (laughs) And and yeah. and that's it does take work to have to. I remember when I first became a bishop, I had been a, a parish pastor for oh god, well, I don't know how many years, twenty-five years or so. And I was elected bishop and I had a spiritual director, kind of a spiritual guide, somebody who kind of you talk check in with every month and spend time with and talk about your soul. Um and um who was a retired bishop at the time. And I remember joking with him, um, but I wasn't really joking. I said, you know, I'm I'm feeling very awkward. All of a sudden, I've, I've got a role that's more of a role than I'm, I mean, it's it's it, it's like I can't, I'm not doing, you know, I feel awkward in it. And, and I was expressing all that. And I said, you know, I mean, you know, I'm not used to wearing a bishop's ring and, you know, and they have this big ring on their right hand. And it's like holding my hand down. I'm not used to that. I was using joking language about it but I was actually wrestling with self and role and, and where, how are the two really related? And um, I remember he, he said, uh, his name is Walter Dennis. He said, um, he said, he said, just travel lightly with that. You know, you'll try some things on and some will fit and some won't. And he said, but at some point in time, it won't be a matter of your being forced to fit into the clothes of the role, if you will. At some point in time, you and the clothes will meet at a sweet spot. 
which is where you actually inhabit the role. And then you'll find that you're free. Mm. And, you know, I, he, and he was saying, what he was saying was, yeah, you're going to have to try some stuff. You're going to have to play with that. Um, and, and, and he was actually right. I mean, you, you had to, you got to kind of play with that. Well, no, that didn't feel, that doesn't feel quite right. That's, 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 no, that felt okay. Yeah. I wasn't sweating doing that. That was, and he, and over time you begin to, you and the role actually meet at a sweet spot. And then you are the bishop or the bishop is you, whatever the right language is. Um, And when that happens, you're inhabiting the role um, and inhabits you in authentic and genuine ways. And people see that. Everybody knows somebody who's full of it. <laughs> I mean, you know, we all do. I mean, and and uh, somebody who's real, we, we may be skeptical. Okay, is this real, re- really real? It's like Velveteen, was it Velveteen Rabbit kind of, is this really, really real, uh, real, real? But you know something's for real when you see it. And you know it's fake when you do. Over time, sometimes it takes a while. Um, but when you see it, there's there's a it's a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, completely agree. I think uh, I think you feel it more than know it cognitively. Yeah, um, there's something that you that moves through you when you're in the presence of someone who is being utterly themselves. And I wonder if we doubt it sometimes because. In my experience, it's much more the exception than the rule these days. But it, it it's an interesting reflection to sort of like find the sweet spot between uh, you know, like stepping into something that you, in, in a certain way, inherited a certain container, but also really giving yourself the freedom to play with it, to dance with it a little bit, to see where where is the sweet spot between where I can authentically show up. And what this, you know, what this pre-existing thing uh, mm-hmm. is, you know, for you, it was a particular role. In faith, you know, for other people, it may be a job, you know, like title yeah. position that they're stepping into. It's all the same, the same dance. It's learning how to bring that part of yourself still to that experience. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. 
Good Life Project is sponsored by NetSuite. So I remember when our businesses were just starting to really scale. It was amazing and also added complexity and stress. And the things that I used to do in hours were taking days, too many spreadsheets, too many systems, no single source of truth. That sounds familiar. You should know these numbers. 37,000. 25 and 1. 37,000 businesses have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. And right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash goodlife. That's netsuite.com slash goodlife to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash goodlife. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Yeah, one of the things that I've been curious about too is that the relationship between activism, social justice, mm-hmm. um, spirituality, faith traditions. I know in your life that an understanding of the interconnectedness of those things touched down really early and never, never really left you. It was a part of your upbringing. It's been a part of you. I mean, you're ordained in 78. And I feel like almost immediately that was always a through line. Um, it was always a bigger lens on what is happening in the community not just in the context of what's happening in the church and with the teachings and relationship, but also um, how do these things weave together with ideas of justice and activism? And I know you feel strongly that um, social justice really needs a spiritual base to almost structurally survive. Yeah, it really does. I mean, the work of laboring to create a just, humane decent, compassionate, loving society and or world, community, start with communities, homes, it's work. And it is very often work contrary to the way things actually are. It is social change and change that seeks to move from what is with it with whatever is wrong to something closer to what might look like 
the ideal of of life and liberty and abundant for all. You can't get from point A to Z. You're not going to ease on down the road. And and so it is, as Frederick Douglass, you know, said, um, you know, those who, who want change without struggle are like folk who want crops without having to plow up the ground. You got to plow up the ground. And so it is a struggle and it is a it is it is a long term struggle where things are not accomplished overnight. You know, Dr. Martin Luther King in 1963, um, the March on Washington, you know, his speech and, and now John Lewis's speech, you know, in light of of his recent death and more of an awareness of the remarkable roles that he has played in the history of this country. But there had been marches on Washington that had been going on for years. I mean, there were union marches on Washington. Everybody marched. Veterans marched on Washington. Everybody marched on Washington and, and went to the to to the foot of the Lincoln Memorial. And and yet, I mean, going back to A. Philip Randolph and the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, that's what predated that march on Washington. Um, my, my granddaddy love was uh, was on the railroad and uh, was a Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porter man. I mean, he was an A. Philip Randolph man. I mean, and they were going to marches back in the 40s and they were just marching for for decent wages very often. But that was back in the 40s. They were doing that. And finally, it kind of came to a head in 63 when there was enough media that could make it almost instantaneous so that you could actually see it. That didn't happen overnight. That happened over a long period of time. I mean, there, there were struggles. NAACP and others were advocating for the abolition of lynching laws in this country. And do you know we still haven't finished it? Now, we're getting close. I mean, there's stuff legislation in Congress right now. The point is, true justice, a true humane and compassionate society does not happen overnight. Progress does not happen, as Dr. King said, inevitably. It happens because people are dogged and determined to stay in for the long haul, to work passionately, to work lovingly. Because if you don't work lovingly, it's going to grind you up. It's going to grind you up and spit you out to stay in for the long haul. And the truth is, I don't have the strength on my own to stay in for the long haul. You don't have the strength on your own to stay in for the long haul. I will get bitter. I will get frustrated. I will give up. The truth is, we need power greater than our own to help to sustain us through the long distance run, through the marathon that is social justice and social change. We are not going to ease on down that road. It's it's a long, you know, there's a passage. I, I mean, now you know you want Bible passages, but there is a great one. In, um, it's in Isaiah. Uh, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. And then listen to this. They shall walk and not faint. You would think they'd faint from running. No, they shall walk. It's the walking. It's like Nelson Mandela's long walk to freedom. It is that long Selma march. It is a long walk to freedom of hard work. And we need energy that's more than just our energy. We need the energy of community, human community. But we need the energy of the great spirit of the God who is the author of love and will help us make that love happen and realize the change. And so social justice and spirituality must go together. They, they just have to go together. Separated, it becomes like a, 
a grape on a vine separated from the root. It'll live for a while, but it will wither up and decay. Connected to the vine, to the deep branch and root, it has a source of energy that will, it can survive. And I saw, so I, yeah, I, I just think spirituality, I mean, I, I, it's not an accident that, that Dr. King saw, saw in Thich Nhat Hanh, for example, uh, who he nominated him for, for uh, the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, he saw something in somebody like Thich Nhat Hanh, somebody who had, there was a spirituality that enabled him to tap into the deeper roots, the deeper sources of life. And energy. I mean, when we talk about God, you know, it's easy to talk about God. No, no, no. We're talking about the source of life itself. And it's at the source that the greatest energy is to be found. That's the spark. That's the energy. Got to tap into that source. If you're going to work, if you're going to swim against the current of the way things are, to try to help things to become what God originally had in mind when God first said, let there be anything beside me. That's what Genesis, that's what the Bible says. God said, let there be something beside me. Mm. That's the beginning. Tap into that energy and then let there be light. Let there be a world, let there be a new world. Which is why the work of social justice can never simply be secular work. It must combine the sacred and the secular. It must bring the best of both together. Yeah. You also shared something while you were just speaking. You, at some point, you used to phrase something like a loving heart. It has to come from that place, which reminded me of a conversation that you had recently with um, Ruby Sales, where you were talking about this and... I think it was her who she said to you, the struggle for justice is the struggle towards redemption and not retribution. You have to imagine the good in people, figure out ways to call them to their higher selves, which I almost wonder if coming from somebody else, that that notion may just be dismissed as being naive. Mm -hmm. Coming from Ruby Sales, (laughs) who has lived this her entire life and been at the forefront of this movement you really have to sit back and think about it and say, well, okay, so what's really underneath yeah. this? Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I'll speak for myself. I won't speak for anybody else, but I got a feeling it applies to, um, I'm a pretty good guy, but if you hit me, I'm either going to fight or flight. We're going to one of those two. That's going to, that's going to be the intrinsic reaction. Now that's just sort of a, not just, that's just a given. I mean, I think if you did that to Mahatma Gandhi, his first reaction would be fight or flight. I mean, that's just, that's human, all right? And to teach me that there's a third way, not simply flight, but not simply fight in the old way, to teach me that there's another way, that maybe what I need to do is, is well, what Gandhi did call Moro Jiu-Jitsu, um, that I need to take the negative, the power of your negative energy and transform it into a positive energy and then recreate the situation as best I can. I can't do that on my own. <laughs> I mean, I can train myself in nonviolent techniques, um, just like you, you get trained in a fire drill as a kid in school so that you just automatically do something. If there's a fire, if the fire alarm goes off, you don't even have to think about it. You just automatic. You can train yourself in nonviolent techniques, but at some point, 
there's a part of me that's going to want to fight or flee. <laughs> and to find that third way, if you will, I need my own willpower, but I need willpower greater than my own to engage in the work of, of justice and really trying to work for a just society means you must confront injustice and to confront injustice in ways that are genuinely loving, that actually seeks to convert the heart of those who are perpetuating the injustice, as well as remove and change the injustice itself. That is extra work that Michael Curry doesn't just do by nature. That takes a little extra. I fight by nature and I'll flee by nature. But I won't seek to transform by nature. At least I don't. Now there may be some listening. I, I, I don't, not by nature. And that's why I say, I think there's all, if we're going to find the third way beyond the either or, we've got to have the author of the third way help us. And if the way of love, if God is the author of love, as I believe God is, if God is the author of true justice, as I believe God is, then I want to tap into the original source of love, the original source of justice, the original source of compassion, the original source of goodness. I want that same energy to become part of my energy. As that happens, then it becomes possible for me to be more than simply what my lower nature would do, that somehow my higher nature, when they go low, we go high. And that becomes possible. But that is not merely a humanistic endeavor. That is a partnership of the divine and the human. And, and I suspect that that's the reason that most many of the agents of, of real social change have been religious folk. That's, you know, it is the same impulse that creates a church cathedral that creates a young girl named Malala who stands up for girls and women in Afghanistan. It is the same sublime beauty of the medieval cathedral that, that you see in the life of a Fannie Lou Hamer, Mississippi yeah. Freedom Party. It, it, it's the same. You see what I'm getting at? It's, the, it's getting back. That, that beauty, the source of that beauty that we see translated into the medieval the Gothic cathedral. It's that source that is the author or the source of the same beauty in a human life well-lived in the life of a John Lewis. I used to see him on the plains. I live in Raleigh, North Carolina, but so I'm often back and forth um, in Atlanta or, or actually in Atlanta airport a lot. Um, as uh, the old joke uh, says, um, wherever you're going in the South, if you're on Delta Airlines, you're going through Atlanta. You may be going to heaven, you may be going to hell. But if you're on Delta Airlines, you're going through Atlanta first. And and so I live, I mean, I'm always going through Atlanta. Well, very often the flight, they're one of the flights from D.C. If you're on Friday from D.C., uh, from National uh, to Atlanta on Delta, you'll see members of Congress all the time because they're going home. <laughs> The Southern ones are heading and they're going through Atlanta, depending on where they're going. And I would see John Lewis all the time on on one of those flights. And he'd always get on and always speak and was always sitting in coach. Just the normal. I mean, it wasn't affected humility. It was he was just being himself. And, you know, he'd sit down and talk with you. You 
talk to people on the plane. It's just kind of normal. That kind of spirit, that kind of spirit could be wiped out by the world. But a transcendent source has the power to counter what the world would try to take out of it and create a gentle, humble, powerful human being who is Mahatma, great soul. And those are the folk, those are the folk who change things. And some of them are big ones like, you know, John Lewis and everybody knows about. But some of them are people whose name we'd never know, like the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Yeah. This third way. Let's talk about it a bit. It was the focus of where we started our conversation, your sermon um, at the Royal Wedding. It has become a growing focus of every time I've, I've seen you share words and ideas. Uh, you know, love is the way that it's everything circles back to this idea of love. And we, we started talking about it in the context of how do you actually access that in the context of social justice? You know, how do you, how do you approach the world from this place of love? I think on when times are good, when you have great relationships with people whose opinions you agree and who are not causing you or society around you or those you love harm, I think a lot of us will nod along and say, well, well yeah, like that, that makes sense. I know when I have great loving relationships and I can express it and receive it, my life is a better place and, and the community, my world is better for that. I think we'll get pretty solid agreement with all of that. You know, and then we sort of look at the world around us now. And, and I think a lot of people struggle with the notion of, okay, so, but what about when someone is causing you harm? You know, like, what about when we look at what's actually happening now with violence uh, around race? You know, like when people are literally dying in the streets, how do we approach others who we perceive as, or may well be in a very real and measurable way, causing us or those we care about our community harm or violence? How do we approach this situation? How do we rise up from a place of activism from this place of love and still feel, well, A, A, how do we actually access that in ourselves? Because it's brutally hard sometimes. And then how do we buy into the fact that if we come at the problem from that place, that will lead us. That is the best way to get to the outcome we, we most seek. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Wow. Ultimately, love is an action. But it's the fruit of a deeper root. It begins with an inner conviction, an inner disposition. I'm not sure what the right word, but it, it's something that begins within and that has to get nurtured without. I remember when I was a kid, I used to always hear folk quote Booker T. Washington. I think Booker T. Washington said it, but, you know. He's sort of like George Washington, you know, of course he said that, you know, but I suspect it was Booker T. Washington who, who said, uh, never let any man drag you so low as to drag you to hate him. And that was a constant refrain that I heard growing up. And the folk who said it were often saying it, these are members of family, in the context of civil rights struggles. I mean, that's where it would come up. And it was the kind of thing you'd say to kids, you know. There was an inner disposition that I, I knew that that was the right way, that love was the right way to affect the change we wanted. 
because it would enable us to reflect that change as well as to affect the change itself. But how do you actually internalize that, organize it, and then mobilize it? And that becomes the that becomes the translation of love from an internal disposition to an actual commitment that actually leads to actions that reflect that love. And so you've got to go through those three things, that the, the internal thing, the commitment, and then actions that reflect that internal commitment. So how do you do that? One, I think you got to do it in community. Uh, we get on each other's nerves, but we are necessary to each other. We just really are. Um, because there are moments when you're strong and I'm weak and vice versa. I mean, we need each other to do that. So that you got to be part of a community of folk who, who share that kind of commitment. Two, I do think you got to have a relationship to a God, not a God, I mean to God. You really do, the source of love, and you got to nurture that. Um, and then three, you got to figure out what are the ta- practical, tangible ways that I can actually make love live, not only in my life, my interpersonal life, but in the broader life of my community and, and or maybe world. What are the practical, who are folk who are actually, or organizations or groups who are actually doing love, doing the loving thing? Who are they? And to keep all that in focus, you move forward with, with that. I saw that growing up. Now, to some extent, you know, growing up in the old black communities in those days, back in the, this, is, this would have been in the 60s. I mean, but in those times, you had a community that was relatively, I mean, relatively, that was segregated. And so it's, you actually had a community that was self that was self-contained and was already existent, so to speak. We don't all have that today. It's a little bit different today. But that tells me that the community is important. And so I remember hearing about when we said we got to take care of the community. There was a sense in which we needed each other to survive in a society that wasn't always friendly to our community and to us. Now, uh, minority peoples have known that. I mean, that, that's not anything new, but that, that's just the nature. Of, that's the nature of the reality. So you do need those communities. But that those communities in those days also knew that if we were going to do, we were going to both internalize, organize, and then mobilize this love we were talking about that we needed concrete actions that were going to actually do it. In those days, it was clear. We needed to desegregate America as much as possible. And usually schools and all that kind of stuff were the immediate targets, but everything else, but everything needed to be desegregated. And so that was one approach, one set of actions. And I remember when, and this is in Buffalo, New York, when the schools, when there was a big desegregation effort, it would have been, well, I was in the fourth grade going into the fifth grade. So that was, I was in the fifth grade when John Kennedy was assassinated. I was 63. So this would have been 62, 63. Um, there was, anyway, some big desegregation effort in the public schools. And so we were sent to, uh, went from a school that was predominantly black, not exclusively, but predominantly black, to cross Main Street from East Buffalo into West Buffalo, which was predominantly Italian at that time. And so we, that's where we went. And, um, and so I went from fourth grade in one context fifth grade in a completely across Main Street, if you will. Before we did that, before that happened, they brought us together Sunday school and church. I don't remember all that they told us, but they reminded us, you are a representative of your community. You are a representative of your people. You have an obligation 
to act in such a way that you will help us all move forward. You treat everybody with respect. You treat everybody the way you want to be treated. And you need to show what we can do as a community. That's your contribution. Now, they got even more specific. You see, if you got to internalize, organize, and mobilize, that, that means you need to stay out of trouble. <laughs> you need to do what you're told. Don't get in fights. I mean, they got really specific. This is like more specific than the Ten Commandments. This is for kids, you know. This was how we actually mobilized. They were talking about how do you mobilize love? This was mobilized love in our context for kids. I mean, they didn't use that language, but that's what they were actually doing. And so we went to fifth grade. Our job was to study, to learn, to stay out of the principal's office because you were in trouble about something, to do your homework, to do it. That was our job. That's what love looked like in the fifth grade for a kid desegregating school. My, my point is there was community. This was in Sunday school. So it was in a context of a God context, if you will. And it was love in action. I want to suggest that that model is a model for us today. That now, um, whether it's Black Lives Matter, um, whether it's other protests for social justice or other works, now we must do the same kind of thing. Form communities who are committed to change that is grounded in love, that seeks the good and the well-being of everybody, not just my good and well-being, but yours as well. Good and well-being of those who perpetuate a system of oppression and injustice because they are as enslaved as those who they seek to enslave. The slave master on the plantation in America was as enslaved, though they didn't know it, as the slave who had shackles on them. Truth is, if anybody gets free, everybody's got the possibility of getting free. And so We've got to figure out ways to form communities, to be in relationship with God, to internalize, to organize, and then to mobilize love in practical, concrete ways. For example, Black Lives Matter, if all the protests just stay protest and do not translate into voting and do not translate into reimagining policing and criminal justice and, and practical, concrete ways, if it doesn't mobilize, then it is for naught. But if it is internalized, the spirit of love must be internalized and then organized and then mobilized into action. Then something positive and constructive happens as long as the internalized love continues to be the thread through the organization and the mobilization. If that thread of love gets lost, then even the cry for justice can become a cry for revenge. And that's not the change we need. That's just, Dr. King said it well, darkness cannot cast out darkness, only light can do that. And hate cannot cast out hate, only love can do that. Love must be the internalized thread that leads to action for change. And then the change will have the potential to be healing change. It's powerful to see that show up on uh, at scale in society. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? 
for me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33 inch all terrain tires and multi terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. You know, you've also had an interesting experience bringing this same lens to your very organization. Like now as the first uh, African-American head of the Episcopal Church, um, you almost immediately upon being elected looked within your own, the denomination and the organization of the church. And it, it feels like you stepped in and said, where are we not doing this? You know, where are we not leading from this place? And as coming into uh, a church where, as you described, you know, this is a a denomination which is, you know, for generations and generations, been largely white. But also, it's it's been a denomination, as many faith based denominations are. They they have rules of inclusion and exclusion. Mm-hmm. One of those being, uh, and this is something you took a stand on very early, marriage equality, mm-hmm. and saying we want to be a place where if we are truly leading with a loving heart, then we need to love all, and not judge and exclude. And so. It was interesting to see you take this idea or ideal and 
actualize it and mobilize it and then put weight and action behind it within the organization and the community of the church. And at the same time, it wasn't universally received well by everyone within, you know, but, but you had, you had an interesting take, you know, you say like, this is my belief system. This is how I believe we need to move forward that it is important to, um, to acknowledge people with you know, of different gender, mm-hmm. sexual orientations, races, and invite and make this a place where we love all of them. We offer that to all of them. Mm-hmm. That is where we come from. Some people said, but that, that is not how I understand right. um, our tradition to have gotten us to this place. You had a really interesting quote of, about this. It was a conversation um, you had with somebody at the New York Times not too long ago, where you shared what I believe about human equality and dignity is grounded in what I believe about the love of God, and that love is not coerces. So I have to respect my brothers and sisters who differ on this question enough to not be coercive. Yeah. And I was just thinking to myself, it's a really interesting and delicate place to be when you believe in your heart that this thing really matters and that you would love to see, as we talked about earlier, a transformation of those um, who also are part of the leadership mm-hmm. to adopt this same belief set and to to open the arms as widely as you would love to see them opened. And yet at the same time, there's something inside of you that says, I need to also at the same time love who they are and this position that they're currently standing in and keep doing the work to hopefully see them evolve, but not in this, it was interesting language, coercive, quote, coercive way. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, and and it's, it's delicate. It is a delicate, difficult because it's, especially when I was a Bishop of North Carolina, for what, uh, 12 years, the Episcopal Church had been working a long time around concerns of human sexuality and what would full inclusion of LGBTQ folk in the life of the church fully, what does that look like and what does that mean? I mean, the church kind of said that all are welcome and it said that, um, but hadn't, you know, you got to live into it. You've got to figure out what does that mean? <laughs> I mean, what does that look like? In uh, I can't remember the exact year, but uh, the ordination of, of of Bishop Gene Robinson as Bishop of New Hampshire kind of crystallized it. I mean, again, there was a lot that had gone on before that, but kind of crystallized it. And and it was a moment when the church kind of had to decide. Um, it was a dis- a moment of deciding who were we going to be. I don't remember exactly what year it was. I want to say. 2003. In fact, it was. It was 2003 um, when Bishop Robinson was elected, who was a gay man, um, a pardoned gay man. Uh, this was prior to marriage equality. Marriage hadn't gotten hadn't happened yet, um, but he was a partnered gay man, a priest of long standing, and he was elected and eventually ordained uh, Bishop of New Hampshire. And that really caused a firestorm in the church, um, both here in the U.S. and and the Anglican communion around, around the world. And um, I was Bishop of North Carolina at the time. And, um, you know, a wonderful diocese, diocese and state that I love. And yet that was a difficult time um, here as it was in other places because it meant a, a change in thousands of years of understanding of human sexuality. I mean, it really did. Um, and challenged some assumptions and things that we were all, if not taught, were just assumed. (laughs) 
and and so it was even though there had been education and you know all sorts of work that had been going on and even in the Episcopal Church for years, this was a cultural, this was a mindset that was uh, fundamentally being challenged. And uh, eventually, I mean, I made it clear here uh, when I was in North Carolina um, that I believed that this was the right thing to do because I really do believe, you know, there's that old medieval hymn, Ubi Caritas, where it says, where true love is found, God himself is there. And that my experience had been that I had seen real love and friends of mine who were of the same gender. At the time, I said, I know gay people who have been in marital-like relationships for years, decades, and I'm seeing real love there. And if I'm seeing real love there, can it be that where true love is found, God himself is there? And, you know, I went back and looked at scriptures and wrestled and did all of that and kind of came to the conclusion that, you know, the dominant law in scripture is love. That is the dominant law. And I'm sorry, I'm, you know, you may agree with me or disagree, but I believe that that is the dominant. It is the dominant thing in the teachings of Jesus. You see it in the Hebrew scriptures. You see, I mean, Jesus got it from the Hebrew scriptures. You see it in Christian scriptures. And if you look deeply in religious traditions, you will see that this way of unselfish, sacrificial love that seeks the good and the well-being of others as well as itself undergirds religion at its best. It's there. And I mean, the New Testament says that God is love. I mean, it actually makes that bold declaration. I mean, my God, think about that. God is love, which means the source of any kind of genuine love that you see or experience is actually God. If that is true, then the love that I feel and believe that God has for me is the same love that God has for you. And where true love is found, God himself is there. And on the one hand, it it, it was a step, but not a leap for me at that point in my life to say that about my understanding of folk who are LGBTQ folk, that if God loves them, like that old hymn says, just as I am without one plea, if God loves them the same way God loves me, then the church has to change. What I didn't anticipate was the realization that the same love that I believe God has for LGBTQ folk God has for the folk who opposed changing the church. That that love is an equal opportunity employer. That, That this way of love must somehow embrace us all. Make the change, but make the change in ways that include us all. And that meant it would be easy and one thing, you know what I mean? Easy to be self-righteous and, oh yeah, I'm standing up for the good cause and all that kind of, that, that's easy. What's more difficult is to stand for what you believe is right and at the same time make space for those who disagree with you in genuine love, respect, and charity and to hold those two in tension and to try to hold both of those together. That is the hard work of love.
that seeks to change what hurts and harms, and yet seeks to change in ways that lead to healing for all. But but it's the only way of change that really changes. Any other way is just one side winning and another side losing. I think they tried, they were working on that in South Africa. When instead of having the Nuremberg-like trials for the perpetuators of apartheid, they realized that they needed to do something that would help to set the stage for the long-term healing of South Africa. And they moved to a mo- another model, not, not of victor and vanquished, but one of truth and reconciliation, where the truth must be told and there must be judgment People must be accountable. And yet the eventual goal must also be reconciliation to renew and restore relationships between people. That's the hard work, the hard discipline of love. Dr. King talked about it in terms of nonviolence. It is the nonviolent way that he said it well at the end of the Montgomery bus boycott. 1956 or so, um, he was asked about the boycott. And and he said, you know, to be sure, we wanted to uh, desegregate public transportation. And that was the immediate, you know, proximate. That was what we were mobilizing for. Um, And he said the goal was, you know, desegregation. You know, the goal was um, integration. Said the goal, the goal was reconciliation the goal was redemption and they said no the goal is the creation of the beloved community that that is the ultimate goal you can't get the beloved community by unloving means you got to love the whole way and I said to Later, when I was presiding bishop and said to other archbishops from around the world who disagreed with with our actions when we actually did make it possible for merit to be open to all, I said, we, I truly believe that the same love that makes room and space for LGBTQ folk makes space for you and me, even when we disagree. That's the power of love. And ultimately, it will set us all free. Hmm. Yeah, feels like a good place for uh, for us to come full circle as well. Um, hmm. So we've been having this conversation, this, this container, the Good Life Project. If I offer up the phrase, to live a good life, what comes up? To live a good life is to live a life where love defines who you are and makes you more than you ever dreamed you could be. That's a good life. Mm. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. 
hey, before you leave, if you love this episode, Safe Bet, you'll also love the conversation we had with Reverend Jackie Lewis about love in challenging times. You'll find a link to Rev Lewis's episode in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, please go ahead and follow Good Life Project in your favorite listening app. And if you found this conversation interesting or inspiring or valuable, and chances are you did since you're still listening here, would you do me a personal favor, a seven second favor and share it maybe on social or by text or by email, even just with one person, just copy the link from the app you're using and tell those, you know, those you love, those you want to help navigate this thing called life a little better so we can all do it better together with more ease and more joy. Tell them to listen. Then even invite them to talk about what you've both discovered because when podcasts become conversations and conversations become action, that's how we all come alive together. Until next time, I'm Jonathan Fields, signing off for Good Life Project.